0: I'm entitling this particular portion of scripture, Our Savior Sees Us. Earlier in the chapter, it says, We See Jesus. And I'm going to suggest to you that this particular passage is going to bring to our attention how Jesus sees us. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 14 through 18... The writer of Hebrews writes, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is, the devil... And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. The chapter began with a warning in verses 1 through 4. Don't drift away from the message of the gospel, the message of truth. Understand the message of love obey the message of truth in verse two. The author then writes of the ministry of the Lord Jesus, his sovereign ministry as the creator of all people. And then Christ cares for his people, how Adam was placed in charge of God's creation and how Jesus in his ministry of submission allowed himself to be made a little lower than the angels for the purpose of dying so that Man's rebellion and restoration could be made possible. And so the writer speaks of Christ's sanctifying ministry in verses 11 through 13. That is God's power to make the saint holy. But now he's also going to include Christ's ministry of subduing the power of Satan, who once held the power of death in verses 14 and 15, and that Jesus, having once suffered, is now able to help those who suffer, demonstrating that Jesus has ultimate sympathy in verses 16, 17, and 18. Now, even as we continue our study, remember, remember the theme of the book of Hebrews. Remember that Jesus is better. Jesus is better in his person, better in his message, better than the angels. And don't drift away from the word of God. Don't doubt the word of God. In chapters 3 and 4, it's going to encourage us not to grow apathetic and indifferent to the gospel or also to the word of God in chapters 5 and 6. And so the writer of Hebrews knows that some people will wonder as they're reading the book, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, how can Jesus be better than the angels if Jesus had a physical, temporal, human body? And the writer's response is, remember that Jesus has been given a body, a human body, to accomplish his plan of sacrifice and salvation and redemption. Jesus is the last Adam in verses 5 through 13. And the ministry of Jesus defeats the devil in verses 14 through 16. And so the author is arguing that Christ also was given a body so that Jesus might be our sympathetic high priest. He isn't just simply sympathetic. He identifies with us. The writer of Hebrews also knows that some people, perhaps many people, are afraid of death. Wearsby writes, death and the fear of death were the consequences of Adam's sin. And he cites Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, Rightly. In our last study, the writer said, but we see Jesus in verse 9. Now we also understand that Jesus sees us. We see him. He sees us. He sees what we're thinking and he sees how we're feeling. And he sees our circumstances and he sympathizes with our condition. Someone once described sympathy as your pain in my heart. The poet Alexander Pope wrote, quote, Teach me to feel another's woe, to hide the fault I see, that mercy I to others show, that mercy show to me. We see people, we experience compassion. We know Jesus sees us. But again, what does he see? How does he feel? And for some of you, you might think Jesus looks at me and I'll tell you exactly how he feels. Judgment, condemnation. He looks at me and he goes, ugh. Or like the very famous person said when they were asked to describe God creating man and woman and and the woman was telling the story how God creates Adam. And he looks at Adam and he goes, I can do better than this. <laughs> and we sometimes think that God looks at us. Void of sympathy. That God looks at us and he, even on the best day, he might look at us and he, he experiences, well, Disappointment. But when we discover that Jesus really loves us, that he wants to exercise mercy, that he really has sympathy and compassion, that sympathy and compassion and patience what mark our Savior's heart, some of us begin to get a little bit excited and filled with hope as we realize that God in Christ loves us, cares for us, and is looking for reasons To redeem us and reconcile us. And so in this particular passage, Jesus provides emancipation from the power of Satan. Liberation from the fear of death. Expiation. You may not know what that means, but it's the expunging of forgiveness, of cleansing and washing from sin. And then also aid in temptation. So if you're wondering what he sees, he sees a person who can be delivered from the power of Satan and liberated from the fear of death and washed and cleansed and be given a way to address temptation and deal with it. And so in verse 14, we see the Lord Jesus, our great deliverer, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood. That means in much then as the children, that's you and I, we became human. We became partakers of flesh and blood. I had a call on my radio program this last week where an unbeliever called me and said, if you Christians really, really believed that your child runs the risk of going to hell, shouldn't that discourage most of you from having children? Well, you laugh, but you could see how an unbeliever could come up with something like that. And I said, do you have any children? He goes, well, no. I said, the Bible says exactly the opposite of your perspective, that children are a heritage from God. And you see the possibility that they could go to hell, but I see the possibility that they could have a right relationship with Christ and that they could, they could walk in communion and love and friendship and fellowship with God. When he says, inasmuch then as the children, that's you and I, human beings, have become partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That is, your savior, Jesus, became a human that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is, the devil I want to draw your attention to that word destroy very briefly because usually in our culture and society or in in common usage of the word, we tend to think of the term destroy as to mean to annihilate or obliterate. But in this particular instance, it's a word in the Greek language that means to render inoperative. When you pull the plugs Or the cables on a battery in a car. You don't destroy the car, but you render it inoperative. And that's what he's saying. That through death he might destroy, render inoperative. He who had the power of death, that is the devil. Those who think that the humanity of Jesus is a source of shame. The writer invites the reader to reconsider their position, to think again. The fact that Jesus could become human means the ultimate destruction of Satan. That's the argument that that the writer is making. Jesus isn't ashamed to identify with the hurt, with the lost, with those people who are miserable and unworthy and helpless and hopeless, that Jesus is wants to identify with the soiled sinner that Jesus will die for the sinner, that he will endure the cross, that he will despise the shame. And so remember, remember what the author is doing. He's arguing the superiority of Jesus. And does the fact that Jesus become human and remain human diminish his superior office, word, ministry, claims, The the author argues, no, far from it. The very fact that Jesus becomes human means that our deliverance is possible and that Jesus does this by five things. Number one, Jesus voluntarily takes on human flesh, willingly becomes a human being at the beginning of verse 14. Jesus voluntarily agrees to die for us in verse 14, that through death, Number three, Jesus would destroy the power of Satan over sin and death. And number four, Jesus will deliver men and women from the fear of death in verse 15. And number five, Jesus has delivered us from the bondage or the enslavement of our sinful nature in verse 16. Satan still retains power. He can oppose God. He can oppose the purposes of God but he's received a death blow, a mortal wound at the cross of Calvary. George MacDonald wrote, quote, his time is short. His doom is sure. It reminds me of a story of a a mother and her daughter who went to a zoo and they were going through the different exhibits and they, they come to this one exhibit and they see this lion and it looks fairly intimidating, and it growls, and it roars, and to their surprise, a man walks in with a mop and a bucket, and they're horrified, they're terrified, as, as this guy walks, and he starts cleaning up after the line, and starts mopping the, 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 the grounds, and he starts changing the water and all of that stuff and their eyes get bigger and bigger and bigger and finally as he gets closer and closer to the lion he takes the mop and he hits the lion with the mop to move out of the way and it goes and then it moves and the lady said to the man either you must be a very brave man or that must be a very tame lion And the man looked up and he says, nope, I'm not brave. And that lion is not tame. And then he grinned and he said, but he ain't got no teeth. (laughs) That's exactly the point that's being made here. Our adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, goes around seeking whom he may destroy. But the Bible says he He's been rendered inoperative. So in what way does Satan have the power of death? Well, some suggest in the sense of demanding death. Remember the Bible says the soul that sins, it shall surely die. It was through Satan that sin found entry into our universe. And God's holiness rightly insists that the soul that sins shall die. Can Satan inflict death on a believer without the permission of God? For those of you who followed along when we were going through the book of Job, you'll remember that the book of Job suggests that the answer is no in Job chapter 2 verse 6. Remember, the Bible says that, that the Lord said you can afflict this person and you can afflict his goods or his, his body, but you will spare his life. And even in the New Testament, you'll remember that when Jesus tells Peter, Satan has asked for you to sift you. I keep wanting to interject into that passage. And Peter said, and you said no, right? It would appear that Satan has to receive permission. But Jesus warned his disciples not to fear the person who could destroy the body, but rather fear God who could destroy both soul and body in hell in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And so the writer continues the argument in verse 15. And release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. In his humanity, Jesus triumphs over Satan's power and human weakness. We're liberated from fear. Before the cross, men lived in this constant state of of trembling and dying. Woody Allen famously said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality by never dying. But he's going to be severely disappointed. Because people die. We know that. And in ancient times, the fear of death fills. The literature of the ancient world. Catalyst wrote, quote, When once our brief light sets, there is one perpetual night through which we must sleep, unquote. Asclepius refused to entertain the notion of a resurrection. The, the, he, the Greek philosopher famously said, Once a man dies, there's no resurrection. But Charles Kingsley offers biblical hope. He says, quote, It is not darkness you're going into because God is light. It is not lonely for Christ is with you. It is not the unknown country for Christ is there. I have no idea how the unbeliever can cope with the idea of their loved one just simply ceasing to exist. But for some, even Christians, the fear remains. Francis Bacon said, quote, Men fear death as children fear to go into the dark. No wonder Jesus, at one of his friends' funerals, said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. No wonder Jesus told his own apostles in John chapter 14, you believe in God, believe also in me. He said, if I'm leaving, I'm going to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself. Can you imagine Jesus lying about such an enormous subject? The Bible doesn't sugarcoat death or deny death, but describes the inevitable destruction of death in the glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, Paul writes, the last enemy to to be destroyed is death. Paul rightly wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we will carry nothing out. Paul, in what some Bible teachers consider his final words in 2 Timothy, before he himself is facing a Roman axeman, writes, quote, it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In, first, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. The Christian doesn't have to be afraid anymore. The Lord has placed within every human being, I suspect most human beings, or at least most normal human beings, a survival mechanism. We are hardwired to live. So what are some of the aspects of death that can potentially Cause fear. Well, human beings are afraid of the unknown. Sometimes we're afraid that we're going to lose control. We ask questions like, what does death feel like? In life, we can sometimes manipulate our surroundings or the people in our environment. But what about death? Jesus told Peter that as a young man, he could go where he wanted. He could do what he wanted. He could put on his clothes or take off his clothes. He could walk or not walk. But Jesus then said to him, there's going to come a time when you're going to go where you don't want to go. And you're going to have to do what you didn't want to do. And someone else is going to take your clothes off. And someone else is going to put you in a place where you don't want to be in John chapter 21 verse 18. And before Peter received that warning, he, he denied Jesus out of fear. And when he received the warning about his own death, he asked Jesus well, what about John? What about his life? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus in effect said, that's none of your business. Your job isn't to be concerned about what's going to happen to anyone else. Your job is to be concerned about what I want from you and what I have for you. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, Peter Preached arguably one of the most powerful gospel messages that have ever been preached in Acts chapter 5 and literally thousands of people responded to the gospel. We might fear those that we leave behind. We might fear the act of dying itself. I remember the amazing story that Catherine Marshall used to tell She told a story of a a husband and a wife whose young son was diagnosed with a fatal illness. His name was Kenneth. And he loved life and he loved stories and he loved adventure and he loved the tales of, of Camelot. And Arthur and the knights of the round table and the adventures that they would have. And he would go out and play until he couldn't play anymore, until the illness started to take its toll. And he had to stay in longer and longer and longer. And he realized that something was terribly wrong. And his mother was so Unwilling to address the issue of death with him. And finally, that day came that she dreaded when her son asked her the question that she did not want to hear. He said, Mom, what's it like to die? And she caught her breath and she went into the kitchen and she put her hands on the stove and she Cat put up a prayer and she said, Lord, Lord, what, what am I going to tell him? And as she fought back the tears, she went back into the room and she said, Kenneth, do you remember when you were a very young boy and you would play and play and play and, and you would become so tired that you would go to mommy and daddy's bed and, and you, would, you would fall asleep. But the next morning you would wake up in your own bed. In your pajamas. And you knew. That your father. Would lift you from that bed. And he would take you with his big strong arms. And he would place you in the place where you belonged. She said that's what it's like to die. You wake up in the place where you belong. He never asked her ever again. So how does Jesus release us from those fears surrounding death? We love our family, but then we remember that Jesus loves us more. In 1 John we're told in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17, Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God will live forever. Stay in the word. Believe what it says. Believe what the Bible says. Not just simply about this world, but what what it says about the next world. And in verse 16, look what it says. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Let's look at our pile of blessings. Emancipation from the power of Satan. Satan. Liberation from the fear of death. Now an expiation of sin. The expression, look what it says. But he does give aid. That particular passage in that particular sentence translates one Greek word, epi, lambano. It's a word that means to lay hold of. Or to take hold of. And so in verse 16 the writer is saying. For indeed he does not give aid to angels. Or in the sense he doesn't lay hold of an angelic nature when he comes to us. Jesus isn't an angel. Sorry my Jehovah witness friends. He's not an angel. He doesn't have an angelic nature. And by the way this is a powerful passage. Which proves if you will that angels aren't redeemed or saved. You might ask the question, can human beings be saved? Yes, human beings can be saved because we have a human savior. Can angels be saved from their transgression, their rebellion and disobedience? Guess what? Jesus doesn't become an angel. He becomes a human. And the seed of Abraham most likely means... Not the physical progeny or the physiological genetic signature of everyone who has been born to Abraham. But I'm going to suggest to you that he's talking about spiritual Abraham, the spiritual seed of Abraham, both Jew and Gentile. Remember when the religious leaders said, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Abraham never tried to kill me but you're trying to kill me. He said, you're not of your father, Abraham. You're of your father, the devil. Jesus doesn't save angels from their sin. Jesus saves human beings from their sin. God will become a man in order to pay the human debt. And so, In verses 17 and 18, we see the Lord Jesus, our great high priest. Look what it says, therefore, that is, in light of what we've just read, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, human, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Since Jesus saves humans from their sins, it was necessary that Jesus be human in every respect to what it means to be human, save sin himself. What does that mean? Jesus is human in every way. Jesus has human thoughts and human feelings and human desires and human emotions and human affections. And so if you imagine Jesus as some sort of being where his godness leaks into his humanity and forming his humanity or strengthening his humanity, you would be mistaken. Jesus is a real person in every sense of the word. And so the major function of the high priest, so he is a human, he is made like his brethren that he he might be merciful. Towards who? Towards you. And faithful. Towards who? Towards God. And the major function of the high priest was to offer a propitiation for sins. Don't let that big word threaten you or intimidate you. To make propitiation means to make satisfaction... And so again, when he's writing to the Hebrews and he says that he's a merciful high priest and the things pertaining to God to make propitiation, every Jewish person knew that the high priest would make an offering and it had to be the right offering. It had to be a satisfying offering. It had to be the prescribed offering that God required. It wouldn't be just any offering. And so the word Translates a Greek word hilo. Hilosmos. hilosmos is a word that means to render favor, to render satisfaction, to appease. We might think of it as a sacrifice that is acceptable and satisfying in every way to the person who's injured. Now imagine some of you, because some of you are, a parent, and you buy a brand new $30,000 car and you let your son or your daughter drive it, and they drive it into a wall, and they completely wreck it. And your son or your daughter says to you, I'm gonna make it up to you, Dad. I'm going to pay you back $10,000. And you go, it's a $30,000 vehicle. I just thought because you're my dad and I'm your son that, you know, we could give it a little wiggle room here because, I mean, after all, you're the dad and I'm the son or you're the mom and I'm the daughter. And maybe we could just sort of, you know, make a little bit of an accommodation. And again, when you're asking and you're answering the question, about propitiation or a satisfying solution to the problem in order to come to a place where you come to a resolution of what constitutes satisfying. How do you satisfy God? How do you render to God what belongs to God? In order to even understand the concept to make satisfaction, you have to understand the nature of sin and you have to understand the nature of God. Some of us saw in the news where a man jumps the White House fence and he runs into the White House and um, he makes it to a particular place. Now, by the way, in normal circumstances for a normal person, If you hop the White House fence and you enter the White House precinct, is it a fair expectation that a Secret Service agent is going to put a bullet in your head? Yeah, I think that the answer is yes. In other words, the threat rises in direct proportion to the particular office that a person occupies. I've used this illustration in the, in the past. If you come up to me after the service and slap me, probably the rest of the people in the church will just applaud. But if you go down to the state capitol and you slap the governor, chances are you're going to get arrested. But if you throw a punch at the president of the United States, you might find yourself Dead. Think of the power, the majesty, and the glory of the sovereignty of the self-existent God. What should be the satisfaction? How do you make it right with him? But the writer of Hebrews is basically saying that Jesus becomes that propitiation by being the sacrifice himself. In 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 it says and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the world here in his love not that god that we loved god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation the satisfying solution to the problem of our sins, in First John chapter four, verse 10, to accomplish this satisfaction, Jesus does what could never be done in any Old Testament sacrifice, or by any Old Testament high priest. He'll be the sacrifice. Our willing, sinless. Sacrifice. Why do we even need a sacrifice? Because of God's wrath. What is that? What is God's wrath? It's that powerful, stern reaction of the divine nature to both the problem of evil and the problem of sin. The psalmist anticipated this when he said in Psalm 85:10. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. How does a holy God, a righteous God, also exercise mercy and sympathy? And this is the point that the passage is making. When God looks at you, it's not in disgust, but rather mercy, sympathy, In verse 18, it says, for in that he himself has suffered being tested or tempted. Let's talk a little bit about that for just a second. In the Bible, you'll see the word tempted and you'll see the word tested. What's the difference? When the Bible says, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, we typically will define the word tempted as a solicitation to evil. This is different from a test. Is Jesus tempted in the same way that you are and, and I am? I'm going I'm to suggest to you that, he's, that he is in the sense that he's human. But you see, temptations take two forms in your life and my life if you're honest with yourself. And that is a solicitation to do something that you're capable of doing or to do something that you're incapable of doing. Most of you will never be tempted to cut off the head of your child. You would find that disgusting, abhorrent. That's not something you struggle with. You don't just sit there and go, Oh, Lord, I just feel like I'm tempted to, uh, you know, get rid of these guys. Most people don't struggle in that area, but we do struggle with different things. For he himself has suffered being tested or tempted. He is able to aid those who are being tempted. So what does Jesus provide? Help for those who are tempted. Why? Because he's human. Why? Because he understands what it's like to be without food and water. What does Jesus provide? Help for the tempted. Now, again, let's review quickly. Jesus provides, number one, emancipation from the power of Satan. Number two, liberation from the fear of death. Number three, expiation, that is forgiveness, cleansing, washing from sin. Number four, now he gives aid in temptation. Jesus knows what it means to suffer. Jesus also knows what it means to be tried and tested and tempted. In what way was he tempted? Most of you are familiar with the story in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. But if you're not, just turn over there real quickly. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, there's a series of temptations that take place. Many of you are familiar with the story. The first temptation relates to Jesus' person. The second to his work. The third, on whether or not Jesus is going to trust in God. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going to demonstrate his power to confront and defeat Satan with the word of God. Briefly, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, it says, Then Jesus, when he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, if you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Question. Is it a sin to be hungry? No. But can you satisfy your hunger in such a way that you dishonor God? Apparently. Because that's the temptation. Jesus is going to be invited To turn stones into bread through supernatural circumstances. In the first, Satan appeals to the body or the desires of the flesh. Jesus is hungry. He's really hungry. And so Satan suggests that Jesus turn the stones into bread. The temptation isn't to hunger, but rather, why would God allow Jesus to go hungry? And, number one, if God has allowed Jesus to go hungry, why not use his resources in order to satisfy his hunger? And so Satan wants us to think that God is cheating on us, or that he's unfair to us, or that he's unkind to us, that he doesn't really love us, that he doesn't really care about us. And for Jesus to use his divine powers apart from the will of God would be a defeat. Why? Because the Bible says that Jesus did what pleased the Father in John chapter 8 verse 29. And so Jesus understands something. I am going to be hungry if God allows me to be hungry and I'm going to be satisfied if God allows me to be satisfied. I'm going to have everything that God wants me to have and I'm not going to have anything that God doesn't want me to have. And you'll remember that he meets the temptation by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone. You know the rest of it. But by... Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The Lord will test us in the ordinary activities of life. Jesus lives under the authority of the word of God, and so we're invited to live under the authority of the word of God. And the second temptation in verses 5 through 7 was meant to prove the faithfulness of God. Satan suggests that since Jesus believes in the word of God, then why not prove one of his promises? Remember, he takes him to a place, to the top of of the temple, and he quotes, or rather misquotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. If you really believe, if you really believe that God cares for you, then throw yourself off the temple let the angels catch you and once again jesus answers from the book of deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 16 satan left out one important part of the passage in all your ways psalm 9111 that's the part he leaves out god keeps his promises when we keep his ways jesus says We should live by the word of God, but then Satan adds to the word of God or subtracts from the word of God. And so Satan understands and will play the game with you. Oh, you're a believer in the Bible. Satan's a believer in the Bible as well. But he will add things to the Bible or he will subtract things from the Bible. He's an expert at foolishly twisting the scriptures, bending, distorting, denying the Bible. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, he can twist the Bible and give carnal Christians biblical answers to support their foolish actions. Beware of taking promises out of their context or claiming promises when you haven't met the conditions. To do something without the Bible's authority is to sin for whatever is not of faith is sin according to Romans chapter 14 verse 23. This is to tempt God, to dare him, to intervene and rescue when you're in trouble. This is that kind of foolish daring that says, God, if you're really God, then you're going to give me rainbows and ponies and sunshine and lollipops and Rainbows and everything that's wonderful is what I'm feeling when we're together. Brighter than a lucky penny when we're near the rainbow disappear. You know the rest of the song. It's the idea that you're going to foolishly call on God to give you exactly what you want. Just like a child. Unless you give me exactly what I want, I'm going to hate you. We dare him. Deliberate disobedience, by the way, is an invitation for discipline. And in the third temptation, in verses 8 through 10, in Matthew chapter 5... Satan offers Jesus a little shortcut or an easy way to wear the crown as king. Remember, he takes him to this pinnacle and he sees all the kingdoms of the world. Satan seems to possess a certain amount of authority over this world and and the kingdoms of this world. And Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world without a crown of thorns or without the cross of Calvary. And by the way, there's nothing in the text that would suggest that Jesus says, you can't do this. You have no right to offer the kingdoms of this world. John the Apostle says exactly the opposite, that the governments, if you will, of this world lie in the lap of the wicked one. Satan was tempting Jesus, you want to be king, I'll make you king. You want to be a king, you don't have to have a cross, a a, a crown of thorns. You can have a crown of gold. You don't have to have a, a, a wooden cross. I'll give you a golden throne if you'll just simply bow down and worship me. Do you remember his response? You shall worship the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 6.13 and him only shall you serve. But make no mistake about it. What you worship really is what you serve. And whatever we worship really is our God. And if a person lives for pleasure, if a person lives for self, if a person lives for money, if a person lives for sports, you will obey what you love. You will obey what you long for. You will worship what you care about the most. At my mother's funeral, I said, People who never think about heaven or rarely talk about heaven probably aren't going there. My grandma was right. She said, Temptations are like bums. Treat one nice, and he'll return with all his friends. In a poll taken by Leadership Magazine, 500 pastors were asked, what's your greatest temptation? The number one temptation was illicit sex. And the second was the temptation to quit the ministry. What's your greatest temptation? Was it, what is it that eats at you, that gnaws at you? That troubles you? What is the reoccurring solicitation that's being offered in order for you to turn away from the Lord? One day, I suspect soon, one day soon. Satan will hand over the kingdoms of this world to the Antichrist, according to Revelation chapter 13. And I also suspect that Jesus will come and take those kingdoms by force in Revelation chapter 19. And Jesus will return. And he will be the rightful king. And the rightful ruler. To the writer of Hebrews, Jesus is our victor. And Satan is the defeated foe. And we can look to Jesus for help and strength and encouragement. William Newell writes, quote, Satan has no power. He has no rights over you. None. He may hinder you. He may oppose you. He did and does oppose all testimony in Christ's name but God has reckoned to you the full value of Christ's whole work and neither guilt nor bondage nor fear belongs to you at all you are in Christ and are as Christ in God's reckoning the sting of death is sin but Christ bore the sin and put it away the power of sin is the law but those in Christ died unto the law that they might live unto God in galatians 2:19 and you are in a risen Christ, who is all in all to you, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. If, therefore, you are not as free from the devil's bondage of fear as Christ is, it's either because of ignorance of Christ's work or lack of reliance thereon, unquote. But according to the writer of Hebrews, you can no longer plead ignorance You get to say, with the man mopping the lion's cage, he ain't tame, and I ain't brave, but he ain't got no teeth. That's the testimony. You get to live your life. In freedom. In joy. In confidence. Absent fear. Full of faith. And the next time, we are in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for your love. Lord, we know that Satan offered Jesus a shortcut, an easy way. And Lord, sometimes that's exactly what Satan offers us, a shortcut. Absent a crown of thorns, absent a cross. But Heavenly Father, we know that Jesus had that crown of thorns pressed into his head And that he was nailed to a cruel Roman cross. So that by dying, we never, ever, ever have to be afraid ever again. And so Lord, again, I pray that you would fill our hearts with the confidence of your love. With the assurance of our Savior's love. And that he looks at us. Not in profound disappointment, but with compassion, sensitivity, and sympathy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. amen.